doing okay. How are you? I'm good. Good. Yeah. Sick. Good, 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 good. How was your week? Week was rough. Mm-hmm. I... Your got, girl's got aligners. Yeah, I got aligners, and it's been a learning process because I never had braces growing up, so my mouth hurts, and then I can't talk, and it, it's been making my mouth hell mm-hmm. because it's been... My, I have a piercing in my mouth. It's not a... Well, I mean, I do have a tongue piercing, but not the one you're thinking of. And then I have my smiley pierced, and it's pushing up against my aligners, and then because my aligners are pushing up against the piercing, it's pushing up against my lip, and it's causing a sore, and I had elephant mouth yesterday. It was so swollen. It was so bad. It's fine. (laughs) I showed her the beauty of wax. Yes, the beauty of wax, and then the beauty of hydrogen peroxide. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> we're working Welcome. through it. Welcome. I, you know what though? I'm so glad that it's so much faster than actual braces are. Cause Same. Fuck me. I was in braces for years. Yeah, I think I'm it only having to deal with these for four months. Yeah. So if everything goes as scheduled, right? So fingers Sick. crossed. Very cool. Super um, cool. Um, I had an average week. Another dead body. So that would be four. In the, in the last, last two, two weeks. Yep. That you've had to deal with. We've had more than that, though. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't. I think it goes in waves. I'm not sure, but... I don't know. Yep. I was just talking to coworkers the other day, and I we are saying about how, like, calls are picking up a lot faster than normal. Like, it's yeah. barely even spring, and we're... I feel like we're already getting summertime calls. Yeah. So, Absolutely. I'm dreading I feel like what the summer's gonna bring. I feel like it's spurred on by, like, a lot of things opening up. Like, people are just stoked, and so they're out, and so then oh, you get more. You just get happening. more. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got a little butter, little butter, butter butt with me. I thought you were oh, gonna butter say butter face. Oh, no. I was trying to say butterball, and then I kept panicking because I couldn't think <laughs> of ball. Look, he's a little ball of butter. Yep. Oh, you're so precious. Well... Are you ready? Well, I'm ready. Our theme this week is killer siblings. Yes. I'm Which, stoked. I'm actually I've been wanting to talk too. about this for years on my other podcast and never did that, and now I'm super stoked. <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard about this. I had to Google killer siblings because I don't really Because I took the one that people know, and yeah. she's like, shit. Uh, yeah, now basically. Now I have to find one. So um, I found this. I... I've never heard of yours. I hadn't either, and finding anything on it was a pain. Like, the only articles that I found online were talking about, like, oh, these dead bodies were found, and these were the suspects, and this is how they got caught. Congratulations. But I'm like, but what about, like, more in-depth about the killings? Like, everything was very vague and broad. I I think mine would have been a lot like that, because it's very cut and dry if it wasn't such a, like media sensation having one of the first ever this was like pre-oj one of the first ever like televised mm. uh, trials mm-hmm. so interesting i'm stoked yeah so with that being said i do have like some article information like literally sprinkled in here but 98 percent of my information came from the one tv show that i could find on on it and i had to pay for it <laughs> which is a bummer so so you better like it. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. Did I say what the show was? No. No? Okay. The show Are you going is... first? Yeah, I'm going first. Okay, cool. It's my turn to go first, isn't it? I don't know anymore. It's my my turn to okay. go first. <laughs> okay. Um, The show that I watched is called Evil Kin. 
And I'm very surprised the fact that no, no other show or anything has anything about this, at least that I could find, because it's the very first episode of the very first season. So it's like the, oh. they're like... The first one. Yeah. Like, big banger. Yeah. yeah. But nothing. Okay. Anyways. I kind of heard you listening to it, but I fell asleep. You fell asleep. It's fine. I am talking about sibling murderers Kenneth and Carrie Allen. Never have I ever. Yeah, isn't that weird? So we're going to start with the victims and their story, which is going to be Leander, who goes by Lee, and Betty Bradley. They were high school sweethearts who ended up moving to Indianapolis, Indiana. They eventually had kids named Sharon and Ronald Bradley. We're going to focus on Sharon for this story, though. Sharon had a reputation of being the prettiest girl in the neighborhood, which she was growing up. She, according to her brother in the documentary, she knew she was the prettiest girl. So she could get any guy that she wanted. Not in a bad way. She was just kind of like a little bit more selective because she knew she was so pretty. So it wasn't surprising when she got married to somebody who was unnamed. I just know that they had the last name of Alan because of Kenneth and Carrie. They had their first child, which is Kenneth, uh, in 1975. Lee and Betty were obviously excited to have their first grandchild, and according to family members, Ken got along with his grandparents very well. Like, they were, like, the very close family that, like, was very caring and loving. And kind of reliant on each other. In 1986, Sharon and her husband have another child, and they name her Carrie. Going with the K's. Going with the K's. Then again, like I said, they were an all-around happy family until they weren't. Ugh. I know. That's how it happens, right? Literally. <laughs> um, Sharon and her husband bought a house for their family, but they couldn't make ends meet with the payments, and they just started fighting about money issues. But apparently um, money had always been an issue for Sharon and her husband. Like, it was something that was just like a constant fight between the okay. two of them. I have no idea what either of them did for jobs either, so that's that. According to other family members, it is known that the two often fought, like, not just about money, but they fought a lot. Like, it was just, I guess, like, the money was, like, the seed of the issues, and it just, like, spread out spread out there. to everything. Okay. So, with Ken being 11 years old at the time and older, he absorbed these fights and started acting out. And essentially mimicking the behavior that he saw at home to school and to his friends. So he started acting badly at school. And it wasn't surprising at all to anyone. But I don't think it really got corrected because it just kept happening. But again, like, how do you correct it when you're in that Well, and sometimes I feel like people, like, kiddos all act out like that and then people are just like oh they have a tough home life mm-hmm. and they kind of let them do it right instead of trying to figure out how to solve the yeah, issue yeah saying like oh well they get to be shitheads because they have it hard at home like right. well, not really yeah you can still be a good person and have a hard time at home right it's totally yeah um but he also at the same time attached himself and connected to his little sister they bonded over this dysfunctional family home that they had sure. and he i guess kind of like was a little bit more of a protector to her like in the documentary they show that like of course this is dramatized but this is probably not too far from the truth when like the parents are fighting like ken was like over playing with the sister like trying to like distract her and i guess trying to like keep her away from that so that's kind of cool yeah in a way i guess but this wouldn't last uh sharon and her husband finally got divorced 
when Ken was around 14. That would make Carrie around three. And this literally split up the family. The father moved to Florida with Ken, and Carrie stayed in Indiana with Sharon. Hmm. So, yeah, they literally they split in half. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's when Ken really went into a downward spiral. He not only lost everything, like his mom, his grandparents, his sister, his friends, and a sense of some type of normalcy. Like, he lost everything as yeah. a 14-year-old. Right. Like, that would suck. Yeah. So, not surprisingly, his mental health got worse, and so did his behavioral issues. These issues that he had just went unnoticed and, like, un- everything. Checked. Like, every- yeah. they just kept going, right. and so, because of that, it just got worse and worse. So then his life really started to go down, like, very down, like, at the age of 14. Meanwhile, let's talk about Carrie. Her life wasn't picture-perfect either. They lived in low-income housing in Nobleville, which isn't surprising for a single mother, but it's still really sad. She lost her brother, who was her safe haven while her parents would fight, and then she also lost her father. So perhaps because she was fearful of losing anyone else at a very young age, she became very clingy and dependent on her mother, and it didn't change as she grew up. Okay. She was just always clingy and dependent. Yeah. And Sharon would kind of feed into this behavior and be overly protective of Carrie and sheltered her. As she got older into, like, school age and, like, middle school, that's when people were like, that's kind of weird. Like, There's a point where the attachment issues kind of need to be dealt with. Right. Yeah. And it's so bad that it's compared to Sharon treating Carrie like an infant, even when she was old enough to figure out things oh, on so her own. Oh, so she's not helping it at all. No, she's definitely not helping it at all. She's kind of like egging it on. Right. Which... Well, she probably wants to feel like she's needed. Right. And at that point when you're that old, like starting to get into your preteens, your kids tend to like push you away. Yeah, and she didn't want that. Yeah. So, this kind of behavior led Carrie to being harassed and possibly even bullied by classmates. And that's not very surprising. It's still sad. But that in turn gave Carrie zero self-esteem. That's it. I know. So she also developed mental health issues that went untreated. Carrie did try to tell her mom about the issues she was having at school. However, it didn't seem to go anywhere when Sharon would go to the school about it. So this is one of the things that makes me so mad that, like, something might have changed in Carrie if she stuck up for herself and told her mom, and her mom was standing up for her daughter, obviously, and the school did nothing. Like, maybe she wouldn't have had such a rough go at life if the school had done something about it. That's the what-if game, but that's fine. Let's go back to Ken. He eventually graduated high school and got married, and he even went into the Marines, but he did not have the best criminal record. Rupert. Rupert. Um, he got charged uh, twice with battery. He had charges on counterfeiting, forgery, and theft. Good lord. Yeah. Which... That's a weird spread of things. Like, normally people stick to property crimes. Mm-hmm. Nope. I think it was a mixture of, like, his anger issues that he learned yeah. at home. And then also we learn about the counterfeiting... Counterfeiter. Hmm. The counterfeiting, forgery, and theft kind of stem from another issue, which is his gambling addiction. Mm -hmm. He developed that while in the Marines. He was so consumed with his addiction that he would disappear for days and just blow off his paychecks. And because he blew off all of his paychecks, he had zero money to live on. 
And um, he ended up being very dependent on his grandparents for oh. money. He would ask them for money and be like, oh, I just I just need groceries. I just need groceries. Just a couple hundred dollars. But he was really gambling? Mm-hmm. Okay. So he would take the money and just end up gambling it away anyways. So he literally, any money he would get, he would just gamble it away. And I have no idea. I've never had an addiction like that where, like, I had no money because I was so consumed by that. So yeah. I can't even imagine what it would be like to, like, I'm hungry. What do I do? So that's where the theft, I imagine, okay. comes in. Okay. Like most addictions, it became his life. He ended up being in a lot of debt. He found ways to fuel his money spending, but eventually got caught with stolen credit cards, fled Florida as a fugitive, and went to Arizona, only to commit fraud, counterfeiting crimes, and got caught. He ended up getting a 20-month sentence at federal prison in Kentucky, which I don't know how Kentucky... Oh, never mind. You don't get to choose what prison you go to. I was like, how is Kentucky involved? Right. Dumbass. Um, so, in prison, his life only got worse, as you can imagine. Yeah. Not only are you in prison, but let's uh, kick you while you're down. His wife divorced him. Good. I feel like because of the battery charges, maybe that's the only way she felt safe enough yeah. to divorce him. Because mm-hmm. I imagine battery was oh, once more than likely. Up, again. Yeah. She's like, okay, I'm good. Yeah, she's like, there's no way he can. Me. Yeah, yep. That's what I'm thinking. That's just purely a shum- assumption. She might have been fully supportive of him, trying to help him. I don't know. But this is my assumption based off of... Whatever. Whatever. Sure. <laughs> Wife divorced him. Then his grandparents, who supported him through his addiction, cut him off. Ooh. They, like, cut him out. They were like, Ken, I bet. we're done. Yeah, like, we're done with this. Look at what you're doing with your life. Like, we can't keep doing this. So, though he was in prison, Ken ended up keeping contact with Carrie and Sharon during a couple of calls, Ken calls while in prison. Those are recorded, by the way, yeah. if you don't know. He had essentially implied to Carrie and Sharon about a, quote, better life when he got released that would, sorry, and that he had a plan to make that happen. So. I bet this comes into play later. A little bit. <laughs> So then November 15th of 2004, Ken had spent 14 months in prison and he was 29 years old. He was able to get out of prison at that time when he was released on parole. Yeah. So this is why uh, rehabilitation sometimes doesn't work for people, which sucks because that's one of the major parts of our incarceration system is trying to rehabilitate. It blows my mind how many like parole violations we take a week. Yeah. How many parole violations? How many people are on parole? How many people on probation and still commit crimes? Like, it's just, like, it's hard to know who is actually trying to do better for their lives, and we want to support those people, but then there's people like this who do an awful crime while on parole, and you just let them go. Like, ugh. It kills me. Anyways, I wish there was a way to see in the future. I know. To be like, (laughs) are you gonna gonna actually follow along with your parole conditions? But probably not. Anyways, he moves to Indianapolis... And to be with his mom and sister, I'm sorry, not Indianapolis, Nobleville in Indiana. Okay. Ken was furious at his grandparents for cutting him off. I mean, it makes sense. He doesn't really get it. Like, an addict yeah. doesn't really get it. He thinks yeah. that the, it's just, they're just, like, out to get him oh, or right. whatever those means like are. entitlement thing, too. Yeah, exactly. But sure. I think, really, they didn't want to do that, but they felt no other need. So, eventually, one night, Ken tells Carrie about a plan that he was hinting at on the phone in prison, and he says that he knows that Lee and Betty have a lot of money, they're hardworking and frugal, but that money that they had would be better put to use if Ken, Carrie, and Sharon had it. 
at least in Ken's opinion. Um, how was he going to get this money, you ask? Moida. Moida. <laughs> and he needs Carrie and Sharon to help him do it. I don't know why, but he he needs them. Um, Carrie still maybe felt that bond to Ken from when they were little, and I guess at the end of the day, um, he's her older brother, someone she loves, trusts, and would essentially die for. Like, blood is blood to some yep. people. Yep. Like, most of us, we would do something for the person we love, mm-hmm. just hopefully not something heinous and Moida. awful. We also know that her low self-esteem, maybe she had a people-pleasing portion of herself that she was like, well, maybe... Maybe we won't have to do that. Maybe maybe I can help him see something yeah. else. Or... Yeah, something. But she eventually agreed to help Ken. Um, around December 30th, 2004, Ken and Carrie approached their mother, Sharon, about how they wanted to kill the grandparents. <laughs> I'm hoping they were a little bit more tactful than what I what? put into words. Yeah, what does that conversation look like? I don't know, but either way, Sharon Mom, was nice like... Nice to see you. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, how much do you like Grandma and Grandpa? Because what would you think if we... <laughs> uh, but Sharon declined. She was like, um, no. <laughs> I think maybe she didn't take it so seriously because she went to bed. Because it's so out there. <laughs> That's like, true. what? Yeah. Shut up. We're not doing that. Good night. Like- yeah. <laughs> While she slept, Ken and Carrie then plotted some more. Or rather, Ken plotted and Carrie helped him. Huh. Hmm. I feel like her personality really fucked her. Mm-hmm. So, since Sharon knew what their plan was, as well as if they killed their grandparents, they wouldn't see the money if Sharon was alive. They uh, decided that in order to get the money now, they have to kill their mom. So, how? here's my thing. How do people think this is going to go? I don't know, because it like goes guy, very like poorly. guys like Chris Watts. Like, oh, you're going <laughs> to kill your whole family, and then you think you're going to... Move on with your life? Yeah. yeah. Like... <laughs> I don't know. This goes very badly, yeah. very quickly. Oh, where was I? Sharon was asleep, like I said, in her bedroom when Ken put a pillow over her face and then stabbed her in the face. Jesus. Like, your own, your own mother and yes. your first murder, and you're just stupidly stabbing her face? Ooh. That is so personal. Oh my god. At least he covered her face, I guess. But even then... Pussy move. That's true. But people do that when they want, don't want to yep. see their face. Pussy move. Yep. Anyways. So now Sharon's dead. <laughs> and they, after they killed her, they went into the kitchen and had a shot of vodka. I probably would, too. To celebrate. Oh. Not because they <laughs> needed to take the edge off. <laughs> but things get weirder. Oh, I can't. I hate this. Apparently, after they killed their mom and got a little tipsy, Ken either seduced Carrie... No. ...or something. This is going way sideways. <laughs> I told you, it's messed up. They ended up having sex in Carrie's bed... Oh, my God. ...right after they killed their mother. And her body was still in the house. So that's fine. I just like to think that he was so manipulative that he just, like, held something against her or, like, made her feel like he was doing right by her. But either way, like, it just sucks and... It's yucky. It's yucky. Don't do that. Just don't. Oh, my gosh. So after that, they wrapped their mom in bed sheets and took her into the bathtub. Ken made up lies about getting Carrie out of school. Yes, she's still in high school. 
while she's doing this. Oh my god. Yep. A couple days later, they contacted their grandmother to come over. They call and say, like, Sharon is sick. They need their help. Like, they don't know what's wrong with her. Like, you need to come check her out. And she doesn't hesitate. She's like, oh my god, my daughter. She's sick, you know? So Ken greets her and lets her in, but immediately ends up suffocating her with a plastic bag. All while Carrie watched. She just, like, let it happen. And now She knew it was happening, though. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like, after that, this was, like, a couple days later. Ew. Yeah. So you've been chilling, doing these things for whatever, a couple days, and then- With a dead body in the house. Yep, and Let me go ahead and tell you that. Unpleasant to be in. Right. So her, their mom's body is still in the bathtub. Yeah. What do you think they do with their grandma's body? Stick it on top. Yep. Oh, no way. Yes. <laughs> They're like, they put their mom and their grandma in this bathtub together. And Ken was like, what do we do now? So he goes and rents like a truck, like a rental truck. And he goes to a store and he gets a saw and some garbage bags. And I'm sure you can see where this is going. So Ken then sawed off parts of Sharon and Betty's bodies while Carrie took the pieces and put them in the bags. Can you imagine? No. They're not going to get their deposit back on that truck. <laughs> I, I don't think that's their concern. <laughs> um, so the first thing I thought of. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Once they were finished, they took the bodies and loaded it into the truck that they're not getting the deposit back. Yeah, absolutely not. So now two out of the three members are just done. They're gone. And now they have to move on to the third and final step of this plan. And then grandpa. On, yeah, Grandpa. So January 5th, some sources said third, but the documentary said fifth. This is where, like, the newspaper clippings were, like, on January 3rd. Rah, 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 rah. Like, none of the dates were ever the same. But okay. I'm going with the documentary because there was, like, police officers that were sure. being interviewed and stuff. So I hope that's true. Err. Um... Ken takes the rental truck, and they drive it to Indianapolis to their grandparents' house. This is where Lee, who is 91 years old at the time. 91. He's old. You can just push him over and he'd break. <laughs> they, well, they don't do that, unfortunately. Unfortunately. I mean, it would have been a little bit Better less... than what they actually yeah. do? Oh, gosh. Let's so, go. Let's go. He is at home taking his nap, his mid-afternoon nap, just chilling, and... They get there, they go into the house, they realize he's sleeping, and they're like, oh, you know what? We're just gonna let him sleep. We're gonna wait for him to wake up, and then we're gonna kill him. Oh, I thought it was gonna be, like, Lizzie Borden style. Like, like what they did with their mom? No, like, Dad and Lizzie Borden, Dad was sleeping, and she just axed him in the face during his nap. Right, like what they did with their mom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's worse. They wait for him to wake up from his nap. And he has no idea that they're in the house. So he gets up and he starts to walk and he's like, la da 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 da. And he gets into the living room. He goes, Where's my wife? That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He was, whatever. Anyways, <laughs> I guess I never thought about that. Ken attacks him with a hammer. Fuck. Yep. Uh, <sighs> so, like all good criminals with a pattern, they take his body into the bathroom, <sighs> take their rented tools. They don't put him in the bathtub, though. They just lay him on the floor of the bathroom. Stupid. Yeah. And because of the cold winter, Sharon, Betty, and Lee's bodies were pretty preserved and no no one That's suspected lucky. a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so they had time to figure out what to do with the bodies. But first and foremost, Ken had to get that money. That's all he wanted. That's the main concern. So all of this for literally $200,000. <laughs> 
that they just had in their bank account. What year was this? I think it just turned 2005, yeah. I feel like if they really wanted the money, they would have done a little bit better off, like, making it look like natural causes or, like, not chilling at home. Mm -hmm. Yep. Ken ended up getting a laptop, and he transferred the money from his grandparents' accounts to his own, and then, do you want to guess what he did? What? He went gambling for a few days. Oh, no way. He left... For three days, and he lost $60,000. not even good at it. No. <laughs> uh, and all this time, Carrie stayed at their grandparents' house while he was away, and she used the laptop and ended up finding some online chat sites. And uh, she found a woman online, invited her over, and they had sex. All the while, Lee is still dead in the bathroom. She's like, like, you can come over, just don't use the bathroom. Yeah, you can't use the bathroom. If you've got to use the bathroom, you got to go outside. Like, what the fuck? Oh my god. Yeah. So, they lived out their fantasies for a few days like this, and um, after that time was up, Ken was ready to leave the house and move on and live his life. Do you want to guess where he wanted to live his life? Florida? No. Uh, Jamaica. I mean, I don't know. I have it has no something idea. to do with his gambling addiction. Oh, Vegas. Hell yeah. Sure. He wants to go to Vegas. In order to do that, they have to get rid of these bodies <laughs> that they're just letting hang out here. Wow. Um, so he naturally, like most people, goes and rents a jackhammer <laughs> and he starts to take out part of the concrete in the basement of the grandparents' home. And this took a very long time and did not go unnoticed. No shit. Uh, a neighbor, Doug David, believes he saw Ken and Carrie at the Bradley's home near Christmas, which fits the timeline. Mm-hmm. And he goes as far as to recount, quote, The grandson got a portable electric jackhammer out of the car and took it in. What I thought was the granddaughter came running back out and grabbed a couple of five-gallon buckets with shovels in them. End quote. Another neighbor, not sure if it was the same one or not, recounts having heard a sound of a jackhammer at the same time Ken had rented one as late as three in the morning. But no one called the cops. Why would they? What would the cops do? I mean, at least knock on the door and say, hey, can you turn the jackhammer down? Oh, there's blood on the floor? (laughs) Maybe we should check this out. Oh, it smells like rotting flesh in your house? Maybe. It was cold and... At this point, it's been a week. That's true. And Lee's been <laughs> at in that the, point. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and Lee has been in the house where Ooh. I'm hoping that Carrie's been staying with the heat on. Like, why would she be sitting there with the heat off? Man, I don't know. Shit's gross. Either way, you're gross if you can live with that for that long. Right, literally. You're so not just like fucked up. You're fucking gross. Disgusting. So then, once the concrete was gone, Carrie and Ken dug up a hole and started putting the body parts in there. The obvious next step of this plan was to buy cement mixture and put it on top of the bodies like nothing had happened. They did this by mixing the cement in the living room and carrying down the cement in increments in the five-gallon buckets. Okay. What? Jesus Christ. Just, ugh. Hmm. So then, once all that was done, they wanted to leave. They got another car that they rented, loaded it up, and left for Las Vegas to start that new life together as Bonnie and Clyde. So, while on their road trip in St. Charles County, Missouri, just west of St. Louis, on February 9th, 2005, this is about a month later, Ken and Carrie, in that rented car, were cruising down I-70. And by cruising, I mean speeding. And a deputy named Tony Hoysik attempts to pull them over, and they elude for a little bit. 
they began to weave in and out of traffic to lose the deputy, but the deputy is smart and he was able to maneuver and get them to pull over. Once they did, they're acting sketchy. Are we surprised? To add to that, Carrie didn't have ID on her, so that gave the deputy ideas that maybe she was kidnapped or just wasn't, like, free of her own will for some reason. Um, Like, he had no reason to believe they were actually brother and sister because he couldn't prove who she was. And the way they were acting, he felt like something had to do with, like, she was being sex trafficked or something like that. So he was already on high alert about what was going on with the situation. So Ken was asked to leave the vehicle and Deputy Hoysik starts to ask him questions and after he asks ken questions he then asks carrie the same questions and do you want to guess what happened uh they answered differently they sure did <laughs> so deputy hoysig's instincts were kicking in and he asked for backup and then he asked ken if he could search the vehicle huh? do you want to know what ken did i bet he said yes he so said yes <laughs> what an idiot because yeah, criminals are like absurdly confident sometimes. They're like, yeah, you can totally search. (laughs) They're not going to find anything. (laughs) It was so bad. (laughs) Deputy Hoysik found items in the backseat in the trunk, (laughs) such as jewelry, credit cards, more than $1,000 in cash, bloody sheets and pillows, and an ID belonging to, um, I'm sorry, IDs belonging to their grandparents. Well, weird. These people have been missing for a week. They don't know that. For a month. They don't know that yet. No one has done any missing persons reports. So when uh, Hoysik asked Ken why he had these items, he stated that they were his grandparents and they were given to him because they died. Not wrong. But nobody knew that they were dead yet. (laughs) So... Big dumb idiot. Hoysik was like, "Mm, this is weird. So he finds the address that's on the driver's license or the IDs and he requests assistance from Indianapolis police to go to the Bradley's home. The officers go there, they knock on the door, peered in the windows, and there was no response, and they saw nothing suspicious, and so they left. The responding officer to Bradley's house was an Officer Horn, and he also had, like, this weird gut feeling, and he was like, you know what, I'm gonna call this deputy. So he calls Hoysik, and they were, like, talking, and Hoysik basically tells him that he's afraid something happened to the Bradleys, so Horn ended up going back out to the house. And... The second time that Horn's checking around the home for anything, he was approached by a neighbor named Marlon Andrews. Marlon told Horn that something was indeed wrong, and he attempted to pick the lock to the Bradley's home to let the officer inside, but he wasn't able to pick the lock. He was a locksmith and could have picked the lock. Oh, good. So they go around and find an air conditioning unit in one of the windows, and they end up taking that out, and then they go in through the home through a window. Is that legal? That's my question to you. Is that legal? Um, so the neighbor can do whatever they want to do. They could face charges if, if, you know. Everything's fine. Right. If everything's fine, they're like, I don't know. If they didn't do any damage to the house, then whatever. It's probably not a big deal, especially if they knew the neighbor. Mm-hmm. I doubt they would ever press charges, but, like, the police can't do that. According to the documentary, Horn is the one that went into the house. Not the neighbor. I don't know. So I don't know how accurate that is, but... It depends on what info he had and what he got from the neighbor. If he believed it was, like, they could be hurt inside or something like that, that's a little bit different. I mean, Hoysik found the bloody towels and... Or not towels, blankets and pillowcases. Would that be kind of, like, enough to... What do you call it? Exigency. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. 
I don't know. But it, either it's way. all it's all about the context. Either way, yeah, it is. That's true. So once Horn was inside, he found nothing but like a bunch of like messiness in the home. Like it didn't seem very clean. And then he went into the basement and he found that the cement was inconsistent. He's like, that looks fresh. And this does not. Like there's certain it's parts. Weird. Yeah. So he's like, that's that's weird. Yeah. Horn relays that information to Hoysik and um he asks Hoysik to ask the siblings what kind of vehicles that the grandparents had. And so Hoysik asks, and Carrie tells them, and he tells Horn. Horn says that the vehicles are indeed at home, and Carrie can tell that they're caught. She yeah. is like panicking i think sure so she just blurts out during this traffic stop can't kill them they're dead oh my god <laughs> they're dead in the house can kill them <sighs> uh so uh they were ir- arrested <laughs> and taken in for questioning i wonder obviously. what ken did in that moment if if he knew that she said that or if they no were idea. still separated I, I don't know i have no idea i think Can they you were imagine like what the fuck <laughs> I think he might have been with the other deputy. Yeah. That was probably his backup, but... <laughs> Over the radio. Uh, um, we're going to so... need a detective, and I'm transporting these guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, so during which law enforcement in, Indian- in Indianapolis obtained a search warrant. So they must have had something. Enough to get a search warrant for the house, of the yeah, Bradley's home. Yeah, like a confession and bloody... Oh, yeah, that's true. I forgot things. about that. <laughs> I forgot about the confession that I just told you about. Fuck. <laughs> it's like i didn't even do anything what is this research um who wrote this (laughs) literally who wrote this i wrote it two days ago (laughs) so google doc tells me so with the warrant they go into the house and they start searching the home and they take a closer look at the basement um once again the concrete was torn apart and finally the victims were found and yeah it's not good so, while they're being questioned, Ken and Carrie are obviously separated from each other, and eventually Ken is overwhelmed and also confesses. He started with everything that he did, he did for Carrie. And that's it. He wanted her to have a good life. Good and um, he was very insistent that he was to blame for everything. She had nothing to do with it. Uh, meanwhile, Carrie is telling officers really everything that happened. Like... That they both... Yeah. 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 So, whatever. And there's just, like, this awkward moment... In the documentary where they're showing these interviews where, like, they let Ken and Carrie see each other, it's really awkward because they're like, I love you so much. I love you. Like, you're going to be okay. It's fucking weird. So, Ken is 29 at the time and Carrie is 18. They're charged with three counts of murder along with conspiracy, two counts of robbery, and conspiracy to crime, or I'm sorry, commit a murder. Fucked. Um, Carrie might not have physically been part of the murders, but she acted as a lookout for Ken, and she also helped dispose of the bodies, so she was accordingly charged. To avoid the death penalty, Kenneth pled guilty in January of 2010 and will serve life in prison without parole for another 130 years. What about Carrie? Carrie also pled guilty. No, let me get to that, though. (laughs) Um, She also pled guilty because she, her... Attorney was like, you're going to face the death penalty if you don't plead guilty. So that was part of their deal. So she was sentenced to only 38 years in prison and two years in a community corrections program. 
originally, prosecutors wanted a 100-year prison sentence because of Carrie's neglect to notify police, even though she had opportunities to do so. Uh, the judge denied it because she had lifelong cognitive difficulties, a low IQ, and she was only 18 at the time, which made her very impressionable, but also scared only of an Ken. Adult. Mm-hmm. Just an adult. Just barely an adult. But an adult. But an adult. And she, you know, had a mind of her own. She had the <sighs> cognizant realization to know to tell officers during that traffic stop that he killed them. Yep. She knew what was going on. Oh, yeah. She's not that dumb. Nope. Whatever. She got it. Easy. Yep. Um, her earliest possible release date is February... Tw- oh, I'm sorry. February 15th, 2024. Oh, no shit. Yeah, so really soon. So, like, I three years. won't happen. It probably won't. But we'll see how it goes. We'll keep you guys updated if this is still going on in three years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, their sentencing gave an uproar to a lot of people, especially family members, who thought that they should have gotten the death penalty, even their without pleas. Their own pleads. family? Yeah. Oh, shit. Their own family wanted them dead. <laughs> how fucked up is that? Yep. That your own family is That's like... That's a clue. Fuck those bitches. Burn them. Yeah. Burn them. Yeah. Um, I did read somewhere, there was like a court document that I was reading of an appeal that Ken had done recently. I can't remember. It was within the last 10 years. But he had basically said, if I'm remembering this correctly, that the um, fact that they got caught was only because the officer entered the home illegally. Officer Horn. Which, I mean... Whatever, with the air conditioning unit, whatever. Yeah. He has pled that based on that basis so many times, like several times. It's not just yeah. once. And each time it keeps getting denied. Yeah. Because they're like... He's hoping he'll find the one judge who's like, oh, you're right. Yeah, you're, you're right. There are bloody things in your trunk with your parents' stuff in it. That's not whatever circumstances you said. Yeah. Existential. Ex- exigent. Existential. Ex- crisis. Exigent. <laughs> like, emergent. It's like... Exigent. Yeah. Whatever. So yeah, he is still appealing, but I mean, I feel like even if he gets an appeal, he's not going to get out of prison. Nope. He has a life sentence. If anything, they'll just give him another hundred years. Yep. (laughs) He's an idiot. But like I said, you should go check out that Evil Kin episode. There's a whole lot more in there. It aired August of 2003, and it's called Thicker Than Blood. It's their very first episode. When did it air? 2013. Mm -hmm. 13. Yeah. I thought, I think you said 2003. Did I? Yeah. Oh, my bad. It happened before the crimes even <laughs> were committed. It the crimes <laughs> and they still happened. Yep. Nope, that's it. That's that Ken and Carrie. That wild. I've never heard that. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I think it's, like, super wild. Just because I've never heard of it and it's, a f- it's fucked up. It's super fucked. Damn. All for $200,000. I don't know how I'm gonna... I'm going to follow that. Oh, whatever. Yours is pretty. (laughs) Dope. Can we just take a second to admire this little boy? Oh. Oh. He's like, oh. I didn't even realize he was here. Who's the best boy? He is not. Who is the best boy? It's Butters. He's not even in here. Yeah, because he's cuddling on my blanket. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready for the story? Of the Menendez brothers. I'm so ready. Do you know this? Um, I, I know we've talked about it, and I know that I've seen part of a documentary that you watch all the time. Once. You've watched it several <laughs> times, don't even lie. You're a liar. Okay. You've I seen it several you. times. Oh, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> so, 
Jeez. Called out and I haven't even started. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start kind of like you did uh, with the victims and kind of the coming up story. So, Jose Enrique Menendez was born on May 6th of 1994 in Havana, Cuba. He was 16 when he moved to the United States, which was shortly after the end of the Cuban Revolution. So, mm. his family was super uh, well-off, talented, you know participated in sports and they were really good at it but because of the revolution castro was basically gonna take all of their wealth so they moved to the u.s what yeah that was the whole thing interesting yeah anyways uh, keep going <laughs> so jose went to southern illinois university where he met a lady named mary louise anderson she went by kitty oh mm-hmm. she was cute. born in 1941 and they ended up getting married in 1963, and then they moved to New York, where Jose got an accounting degree from Queens College. They had their first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who went by Lyle. Um, Why? I, I just go by Joe. I know. Lyle is, like, pretentious. Oh, maybe that's Lyle. why. Lyle. Yeah, maybe. Lyle. Yeah, maybe. He was born on January 10th of 1968, and when he was born, Kitty ended up quitting her teaching job so that she could be like a stay-at-home mom, and then they all moved to New Jersey, where Eric was born in 1970, so they're about two years apart. A little more than two years, like two and a half. In 1986, Jose's career as a corporate executive took the family to Beverly Hills. Um, He ended up working for RCA which is that, like, music company. And honestly, I don't know how he went from, like, an accounting degree to working for, like, a music company, but he was very, very uh, good at it and ended up, um, who does that song? Is it the Eurythmics does Sweet Dreams? I have no idea. You know that song I'm talking about? Yeah. He helped, like, market that, basically. So he was in the marketing side of all that. Interesting. They earned a ton of money, lived in Beverly Hills, kids wanted for nothing. The following year, Eric started going to high school at Beverly Hills High, where he earned pretty average grades and ended up being, like, really, really good at tennis, and he ranked 44th in the U.S. for 18 and under players. Dang! Yeah, he was really good. Lyle enrolled at Princeton, but uh, during his freshman year, he was placed on academic probation because he had low grades, never went to class, and eventually got suspended for a year after being accused of plagiarism. So, nothing like rich kids, right? Right. Copy um, and paste. They had kind of a weird relationship with both of their parents. I think it's because... So, Jose, because of the way he grew up, he didn't grow up rich, really. And he worked really hard for everything that he got once he was here. So, he was pretty hard right. yeah. on the boys. Like, they showed an aptitude for tennis, so they were required to train every single day, whether they were sick, whether the weather was good or bad. They had a trainer, and they had to go out and, and train every day. Like, that's the kind of relationship they had. He was just really, really hard on them. But then, like, when they would act out and do shit, like, they had a spree where they were, like, stealing shit. Yeah. And instead of going to jail, they went to therapy like rich kids do. Right? So he's hard on them, emotionally abusing them, but also there's, like, no consequences for anything that they do. Yeah. Through the course of the trial, it would come out that Eric and Lyle both claimed to have experienced severe sexual and emotional abuse from Jose. Oh, no. So he would basically, like, make them give him head. He would stick 
pins in their thighs and possibly their like penises. <gasps> uh huh. Pins? And, yeah. P- like safety pins? Yeah. Why? I don't know. In their why? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, this reportedly happened for years and years and was experienced by both boys uh, to the point where they pretty much thought it was normal. Like, there was one point where they went to, I don't know if it was a friend's or family member's house, and they thought it was weird that it wasn't happening, or they thought it was, they, they were like, why doesn't your dad hug you this way? Like, weird comments that makes it seem like they thought it was completely normal. I mean, isn't that how it goes, though? Like, if you're raised around it yeah. and you, like, totally. you think it's normal, so then when you go, like, outside of the, the like, yeah. comfort zone, and you're like, oh, it's not normal to, like, see and have your yeah. dad poke your yeah. pants? A week before the crime occurred, which would be a week before uh, August 20th in 1989, first, on Sunday of that week, Jose told Eric that he was going to be living at home several nights a week while he was at college, which meant that the sex would continue, as Eric put it in his testimony. Eric was going off to college, so he thought that, like, sick, I'm getting out, I can go live in a dorm. I can start over and be, be away. away from this. Yeah. And Jose's like, no, we're paying for your college and you're going to live, you're going to still live here. Oh, how awful. <clears throat> the next day on Monday at a meeting in a restaurant, Jose told Eric, he pretty much laid out his life plans for both of, uh, both of the kids, which included moving the family to an island compound in Florida where Jose would set them, set the two boys up in business and launch a U.S. Senate campaign. I think for Jose. Obviously. That makes sense, right? Yeah, that makes okay. sense. <laughs> so, Eric was, like, super anxious kid already, just because that's, like, who he was. That's what he dealt with. Mm-hmm. And he was super fucked up about this. He's like, no, 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 no. I need to get out. Like, I'm not doing this. So, yeah. he was desperate. He finally confided the molestation to Lyle after he saw Lyle and Kitty arguing. Um, and in this argument, Kitty snatched a toupee off of Lyle's head. Eric never knew that Lyle went bald. How old is Lyle? Uh, in college. And he's bald? Yep. What? And Jose made him feel so bad about it, said it was completely unbecoming of a man, made him wear a shit toupee for years, and literally his best friend and brother never knew about it. Which is wild. So, after this horrible argument where Kitty takes the toupee off of... Lyle essentially taking his, you know, masculinity in front of Eric. Eric's like, well, dad's been doing this to me for years. Yeah. So Lyle promised to confront Jose about it, which he did on Thursday of that week when Jose returned home from a business trip. And Eric said that after that confrontation, uh, Jose threw him against his bed shouting, I warned you to never tell Lyle. Now Lyle's going to tell everyone and it's all your fault. Speaking about the sex stuff. Yeah. So, um, later on Thursday when his mom... (sighs) This is so shitty. So, later that Thursday, he brought up everything to his mom, hoping that she would, like, do something about it. Mm -hmm. She said, yeah, I've known that your dad was doing this to you all along. She said, oh, I've known, I've always known. What do you think, I'm stupid? And you just let it happen? Of course you're stupid. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, He testified that his mom told him that after the family secret came out in the open, so 
after they had this big blow up where like this thing that had been happening for years and years, at least to just Eric, and we find out it also happened to Lyle, everybody finally, it was like out. Yeah. And Kitty said she knew all about it, which is fucked. So she says this to him and he is like, what the fuck? Literally, same. Yeah. So he ran out, out into the family room, past the tennis court and the pool, into the guest house where Lyle was staying. And she followed him, saying, get back here, you fucking bastard. You need to, like, saying all this shit to her son. And he just confessed that, like, dad's been raping me for years. So that's kind of the tension that we're looking at in the house right now. So within hours, the brothers decided that they, (laughs) they decided they needed to buy guns for protection. Because all of a sudden they think that because... Kitty knows that Lyle knows, and Jose knows that Kitty knows that Lyle Like, now that yeah. it's all out in the open, they, they get this idea in their head that Jose's just gonna try and kill him. I don't know how... Which... Uh, how, yeah, like, if that's actually something that could have happened, or something that they would have legitimately been scared about, I just, I don't know. Is this something that they testified? Yeah. Oh, so I'm wondering if they just said that to make it look like they were doing something in self-defense. I don't know. But also, at the same time, like, their dad put pins in their penis. Yeah. So I wouldn't put it past him, like, harming his sons because the secret's out. So I don't know. Like you said, it could go either way. Yep. So on Friday, they drove to San Diego and they bought two shotguns from, I think it was from, like, a Big Ten sporting goods store. If I wanted to defend myself against my father, I would buy a handgun, not a shotgun. That is good thinking. On your part. You are correct. That means you want to harm. Yes. Not just defend. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, they went with their parents on a fishing trip, but they stayed on the boat's bow to avoid them, and the captain of the boat, like, testifies in the in the trial, and it's super... That whole, like, boat trip was weird. They said that they thought that Jose was just going to do it then. There ended up being other people on the boat with them, so they just... Like, it didn't happen, so they I don't know. It Hmm. it seems not legit. All this, like, everything they testified to seems like, you thought that? Like, that's a little far-fetched. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so the next day, they killed their parents. After the boat trip. So, on the evening of August 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty were sitting on the couch in the den. They were watching a 007 movie. They were eating dessert together. And Lyle and Eric enter the house carrying the two shotguns. They first shot Jose in the back of the head with a Mossberg 12 gauge. And Kitty woke up. She was kind of sleeping on the couch at that point. She woke woke up and sees Jose on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, hears a gunshot. She gets up from the couch um, and tries to get away, which yeah. is evidenced by uh, blood on the treads of her shoes. Oh. Uh, she was shot in the leg while running towards the hallway, causing her to slip in her own blood and fall. Uh-huh. She was shot again. The Ugh. boys went back to the car to reload, come back in the house, and shot her several more times in the arm, chest, and face, which left her completely unrecognizable. Both Jose and Kitty were also shot in the kneecaps in order to cover it up and make it look like the murders were connected to, like, a mob killing. Yeah. So the boys get out of the house, they put all the shotgun shells in one of their tennis bags, they get out of the house, and they expect the police to, like, be on the way. Yeah. Nothing. No sirens. Nothing. So they're like, well, I guess we need to work on an alibi. So they go out, and they try to 
get movie tickets saying that they were at the movie, but the movie that they said, wanted to say that they were at, they couldn't get any tickets for. It was all sold out. <laughs> so they end up saying that they instead went to some 007 movie, which is ironic because their parents were watching 007 movies. Right. So odds are they just saw that on the TV and they just said that. They return later to the house. Still nobody was there. So Lyle calls 911 and starts, like, screaming at dispatchers. Oh, somebody killed my parents. All that, like, oh crying, God. screaming, talking to Eric, trying to make it look, like, super, super legit. I couldn't even imagine. So officers from the Beverly Hills Police Department arrived, and the brothers told him that during the murders, they went to the movie theater to see Batman, which, again... They didn't. It was sold out. Um, and then they said that they went to some festival in Santa Monica. And they had no proof that they did any of this. They just said it. They swore to police that it must have been a mob hit because Jose had some kind of mob connections. And the police kind of went down that that road for a while. But then they realized several things. One, uh, the mob is not that messy. <laughs> um, one shot would have been good to go. Right. Like, Jose was dead on the first shot, and they just continued to shoot and shoot and shoot. No hitman would have been, like, would have cared to pick up all the rounds. Right. Or pick up all the shells. Like, that wouldn't have mattered. And then the mafia would have never killed Kitty. Uh, Jose ended up having six wounds inflicted by the 12-gauge. Kitty had ten. Oh. So they shot her ten times. Here's the thing. Also, another thing that I'm thinking of is the fact that, like, you're scared of your dad, but you're shooting your mom so brutally. And what they said was they they didn't think that she could live without him. So they were doing her a favor. By shooting her ten by times with a shotgun? Times. Yes. Like, I'm pretty sure the mm-hmm. first or second shot was enough to kill her. Yep. Yeah, killing her in the face enough to where she was unrecognizable. Yep. I think that's a little yep. much. Unfortunately... I don't know if this was because the Menendezes were pretty well known, if it was because of what they were saying with the mob, but the police didn't order them to undergo any, like, gunshot residue tests. Oh my god, no. To see if they had recently used a firearm. I don't know. I think it would have been safe to do that, but <clears throat> it was also, you know, in the 80s. 80s, yeah. So. In the months after the murders, the brothers began to spend money like fucking... Hotcakes? Yes. Adding to suspicions that they were somehow involved in the murders. Uh, Lyle bought a Rolex, a Porsche, a <laughs> Chuck's Spring Street Cafe. Would... He bought a cafe? <laughs> and he turned it into a buffalo wing restaurant. Oh my god. Uh-huh. Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and competed in a series of tournaments in Israel. Oh, I mean, at least he put his to good use. This was not, like, normal spending by them. Like, they were rich, right? Yeah. They weren't out buying Porsches. Mm. So, another weird thing that they did that kind of tipped police off is, like, that night or the next day, they, they're like, hey, can we go back in the house? We need to get our tennis bag. We have practice. And the cops were like, you cannot go in that house. And they uh, snuck in anyways. Oh, my God. And they get their tennis bag, and they the cops think they're just assholes. But they had all the shotgun shells in that tennis bag that was not looked in by police. So, if I was a cop and I'd be like, oh, someone really wants that tennis bag, I wonder what's in that tennis bag. Yep. They ended up spending, uh, in in the months after their deaths, around $700,000. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a lot, right? (laughs) $700,000? Yeah. I don't even know what I would buy with that money. I feel like I'd run out of things to buy. Yeah. 
So the cops are looking at, like, mob leads, but obviously that doesn't go anywhere. Police end up believing that the brothers probably were the ones who did it since they had an obvious financial gain um, and were all of a sudden spending way, way, way more than they ever had. So that was, like, a really, really big clue to the police. No shit. Start interviewing everybody, obviously. Um, And they interview Eric, thinking that he's involved in it. And they're trying to get a confession from him. So they convince his friend, uh, this guy named Craig, to, like, wear a wire while having lunch with Eric and to try and get him to say, like, yeah, I totally did it. Yeah. Craig asks Eric if he killed his parents. Eric says no. But he eventually confessed to doing so to his psychologist, a guy named Jerome Ozeal. Ozeal was a shitbag. But he's super instrumental in this case. But also, like, if your therapist does any of these things, find a new therapist. Um, (laughs) Okay. He was, like, trapped in the doctor-patient confidentiality thing, right? You can't tell police if your client or patient has already committed a murder if you don't believe that they're a current risk to themselves or Or the public. Yeah. Right. So he didn't tell police. But he started taping their sessions. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, just in case the brothers, like, escalated or tried to hurt somebody else or tried to hurt him since now he knew about it. Yeah. However, he did tell his mistress and other patient, oh, no. <laughs> Julon Smith, about the murders, and she ended up going to the police and tells them. Okay. So it works out. Lyle ended up being arrested on March 8th of 1990, and Eric turned himself in three days later after returning from one of his tennis tournaments in Israel. Both were held without bail and were separated from each other. Fun fact, I think it was Eric was in a cell right next to OJ. No shit. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. How interesting. During OJ's trial. So, in August of 1990, Judge James Albrecht stated that the tapes of the conversations between Eric and Ozeal were admissible evidence since Eric violated doctor-patient privilege by threatening Ozeal. So, basically, Eric and Lyle were both going to Dr. Ozeal prior to the murder. So, they end up going and they they ask for a session after they kill him. And um, Eric just unloads, says everything. He's like, we killed him and blah 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 and Lyle's like dude what the fuck and in the session says what the fuck we have to kill him now <gasps> and so Zeal's like I'm taping everything like yeah <laughs> that's why um so originally they didn't want to use the tapes because they were saying that Ozeal violated patient confidentiality but he didn't because of the threat so that happened that was super duper for the case after that an la county grand jury issued indictments in december of 1992 literally two years after they had been arrested charging the brothers with the murders of their parents the case became a national sensation when court tv broadcast it in 1993 which was like one of the first pre-oj um televised trials i think my mom watched it She's, like, pregnant with you. Totally. Oh, yeah. No, I was, like, just born. It's wild. Um, So they had a defense lawyer who's pretty famous for this case. Her name is Leslie Abramson. And she became known for her theory that the brothers were driven to murder by a lifetime of abuse at the hands of their parents, especially sexual abuse at the hands of Jose, who was described as a cruel perfectionist and a pedophile. Obviously. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, their mom was described as a selfish... Mentally unstable alcoholic and drug addict, 
who encouraged their husband's abuses and was also sometimes violent towards them. She did have a pretty bad alcohol problem and drug problem. Um, and, like, rich person drugs, not, like, meth. Oh. It was, like, painkillers. Yeah. Right. So, Leslie comes out with this abuse excuse. She dresses the boys, like, they and calls them the boys. Like, totally trying to, like, make them seem younger and less, you Of know, a threat. Right. Um, she coddles them, Eric gets sad and cries, and she he cries on her shoulder, and she straightens him out, and all this bullshit in front of- Because she's in front of TV cameras! Yeah, I hate that. It's a whole thing, and she was, like, aggressive towards witnesses, towards the judge, saying just things that you normally could not say, um, in court. To the point where she's saying, well, if you're gonna hold me in contempt of court for- standing up for these boys then i guess i'm going to jail today seeing shit like that and that would make the jury think like wow she believes them so hard that she's willing to take a charge for it which was all bullshit yeah she was never you know in threat of having a contempt of court charge or anything like that it just was all a big show for the jury to get to make it seem like the boys had some kind of valid excuse for violently killing their parents yeah so the trial ended with and they were in the first trial they were tried separately but in the same courtroom which is a little weird that is weird all the pictures i'm looking at they're together yeah so they're together in the same courtroom but they had two separate juries in the courtroom at the same time oh my god so, yeah what it's like a time saver i think honestly so they had eric's jury they had lyle's jury and at the end both juries were deadlocked so they couldn't come to a decision so, the L.A. County District Attorney um, announced immediately that the brothers would be retried. So, mistrial, they get retried. Second trial was a little bit less publicized. Um, the The new judge wouldn't allow cameras in the courtroom, which was a good thing. And then during the second trial, he also didn't let um, any defense testimony about the sexual abuse claims come up. Interesting. So, anything about the abuse was not allowed in the second trial. In the second one. And then I think they tried them together in mm-hmm. the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, so they he, he didn't allow the jury, the one jury, to vote on manslaughter charges instead of murder charges. So the only charges that were allowed in the second trial were murder. They couldn't drop it down. Hmm. Both brothers were eventually convicted on two counts of first-degree murder and of conspiracy to commit murder. In the penalty phase of the trial, they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The whole trial basically... Leslie Abramson, from the get-go, said, we know that they did it. That's not the question. It's not whether or not they did it. It's whether or not um, the intent was there, whether they did it out of self-defense because they thought that they were the ones who were going to be killed, yada, yada, yada. So it all came down to intent, and what they found was that it was completely premeditated because they bought the guns a week prior. Yeah, so I was going to say. They go in knowing that their parents are probably asleep, whatever. And not only that, they shoot mom and go back out to the car and reload. That yeah. shows, like, very obvious, like, we're finishing this, we're doing this. Right. Like, so. Like, you don't just go back to the car without second right. guessing. Like, if you had, like, if you didn't have that intent... You would probably go to the car and be like, oh, oh my god, I can't do this anymore. Yep, and, and then they, they just left, and they waited for somebody else to call the police, and then they came back, and they're like, I guess we'll do it. Oh my god. Um, 
So the jury said that the abuse defense was not a factor in its deliberations, but decided not to impose the death penalty because both brothers had no criminal record or history of violence prior to the murders of their parents. However, unlike the juries in the previous trials, the jury in the penalty phase rejected the defense theory um, that the brothers killed their parents out of fear, and they believed that they committed the murders to get Jose's wealth, so for the inheritance. I don't know if that's true. Might be. Um, it's worth noting, I think it was Eric, What he wrote a screenplay that was weirdly just like this story about... It's kind of like writing a book, or just confessing something, and having a book said, if I did it. Yeah. Yeah. He did that prior to the murders. Like, way prior. What? Yeah. <laughs> so he wrote this screenplay uh-huh. before he killed his it parents. Was like bad. Yeah. About killing his parents? About a, a boy who was experiencing XYZ and killed his parents for the inheritance money. That's not good. Yeah, yeah. During the this is interesting. During the penalty phase of the trial, so they'd already been convicted, and they're just kind of going over what you know if they're getting death, if they're getting life in prison, whatever. Leslie Abramson apparently told a defense witness to edit his own notes, which is a no go. So the DA had a copy of his of his notes. I don't know if it was a doctor or a psychologist. I'm not sure. He had a copy of the notes that this guy took on the case. And the witness also had his copy of edited notes. So he's going off of the edited notes, and the DA goes, I actually have a copy of your notes here, which say the opposite of what you're saying right now. Oh, so um, my God. Leslie got caught for doing that, for telling him to edit his notes, and she almost got super duper fucked. Um, but the DA decided not to conduct a criminal investigation of her. Idiot. I know. Both brothers filed motions for a mistrial on the second one, claiming that they had suffered irreversible damage in the penalty phase as a result of possible misconduct and ineffective representation by Leslie Abramson. This lawyer who coddled them through both trials, and now they're pissed that they actually have to do time. time. (laughs) And then on July 2nd of 96... The judge sentenced them to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Also sentenced them to consecutive sentences for the murders and charges of conspiracy. So they're fucked. They're going to be in prison for forever. Uh, Recently, within the last few years, they've been brought back to the same prison. So they were separated for like 10 years. And now they're in the same prison, the same cell block. So they get to hang out together. Um, I know, I think it's... Lyle's married? One of them's married. I was looking at I think they've both been married? I think they're both married. To, like, pen pals. Yeah, I, there's, like, some it's article online when you Google Menendez Brothers married. <laughs> there's, like, some article that says, like, wives for no sex? And it's like, that's your focus on this? Yeah. Like, how about wives of murderers? Yeah, literally. Jesus. Yeah. One of them's been married, like, twice. In prison. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So. It's that whole, like, fascination. Yep. And that's the story of the Menendez murders. That's crazy. They totally premeditated. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know. I hate it. I do, too. I just don't understand how you could kill your family. 
I no. Sorry, big yeah, gun. I just, at least with them, like if they had that sexual abuse and stuff like that, I could understand that a little bit more than with Kenneth and Carrie because they just wanted money. Yeah. But like also like they just went too far yeah. with it all. Like, yeah. Eek. Again, what was their plan? Like, yeah, I don't try know. and make it look like a mob did it. Like, there's this cool thing called evidence <laughs> and just because you're rich doesn't mean that you don't leave behind evidence right. like you don't they did it they're fucking idiots yeah idiots idiots oliver it's like they premeditated like half of it but then didn't get the details that would have like helped them who was it eric he's just like dude 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 read the screenplay yeah we're gonna act it out totally so that's that that's cool that's what i got i mean it's not cool but it's a it's a crazy I story like the story that you've told that's cool. Neat. <laughs> Groovy. Uh, well. Well. That's it for this week. Yeah, next week we're going to have non... Oh, I guess it is... I was going to say non-spooky, but they're definitely spooky. They're spooky. Non-murdery. Non... Well, true crimey. Mine's kind of murdery. Damn, really? Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> I guess... Yours is kinda kind murdery of murdery, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> But it's a little bit different, a little more folklore, a little less famous true crime. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah it should be yeah. good. Super good. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Who Knew Podcast. Nope, that's not it. Who Knew? It's Podcast. Just who knew? It's Who Knew Podcast? Yeah. <laughs> you can also email us at whonewpodcast666 at gmail.com. And then you can also find us on Patreon if you so wish to do so. No big deal. If you yep. don't want to, it's fine. Yep. We're just here for fun. Yep. So I got. That's what I got. Cool. Who's saying bye? Oh, I got Ollie Oliver. Left. Oh, Ollie. Oh my God. Oh, you got a big stretch first. Say bye, Ollie. I really want them to meow one of these times, I know. but he's a sleepy boy. Do you want to grunt into the microphone? Just get him like breathe into it. <laughs>